0: Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's David Jenkinson. Today we hear from John Thaddei, Managing Director of Avalon Entertainment, about why he's betting on a resurgence in demand for the studio sitcom. Chris Knight, President and CEO of Gusto Worldwide Media, about getting back to a 24-7 production schedule. And Katie Neff, Senior VP of Development at High Noon Entertainment, about how content creation has changed forever. John Thorday is Managing Director of UK-based Avalon Entertainment. The comedy veteran spoke to Nico Franks about why he's betting on a resurgence in demand for the studio sitcom over the next few years, the uphill struggle producers face trying to fully fund shows from a single broadcaster these days and why that's bad for bleeding new talent. He also gives us his take on the likely return of BBC3 as a linear channel five years after he campaigned strongly to have it saved.
1: Comedy... Is at its best when it and when it kind of entertains a significantly large audience. And a lot of single-camera sitcoms are great, incredibly well received critically, and also um, loved by, rightly loved by lots of people, but not by, if you like, significantly big audiences. So if you look at where drama was 20 years ago, it was widely regarded that drama. With the exception, obviously, of the returning, you know, soaps and things like that, was fairly niche. Now, drama is the opposite of that. There are lots of dramas that deliver a high quality, but B to big audiences. So I think that it's in a very good state with respect to the catastrophes, the breeders, the um, obviously, you know, the work that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has done, etc. So there's significant health, but in terms of entertaining a large audience i wouldn't say it's where it was um in its heyday and i i'm hoping very much that that will change
2: what do you think might help it change because obviously i suppose the fragmentation of the of the the broadcast industry in terms of how many channels how many platforms there are to watch things now um is has been a big part of that erosion of the audience or would you say there's there's other things that have happened as well i i don't think
1: that's really what's eroded the audience i think it's what um has been developed and what people have chosen to produce and or commission so it's just a cyclical thing as i say 20 years ago drama was in a similar situation where there were well liked um and well respected fairly niche dramas and now as i say you know you can point to some you know very big ratings hits which also have high credit you know like night manager etc and um so I, I just think it's a cyclical thing. And my hope is that one of the things that may come out of Corona and the period we've been in is that people will be looking for something which is lighter. And, um, you know, obviously we, we produce Not Going Out, which is the longest running studio sitcom. In fact, the longest running sitcom on British television is also one of the most popular with audiences. And I think there is a world there that is underserved, Which is, if you like, the bigger, broader audiences. Uh, I I also feel that the studio sitcom is underdeveloped and underproduced at the moment, and it doesn't just mean for BBC One. I don't think think there's any reason why studio sitcom can't be on BBC Two or BBC Three or Channel Four, and or on net. And I think that there is, for me, though studio sitcoms often deliver a bigger audience. So I, I, I think it would be good to move towards more out-and-out comedy and not just single-camera. Although I love single-camera comedy dramas as well, but I think a broad palette is what you want. I'm not really any more worried about studio sitcoms than I was before because there aren't really very many. Um, And it's one would hope that um, the situation with the virus is the thing that will eventually be overcome and developing a new show takes time anyway. And I I just feel like, um, as I say, I like it very much when comedy plays to a big audience. And I think that the the studio sitcom is one of the things that does do that. And it'd be good if some of the great comic brains thought in that direction, as well as in a single camera direction. And actually, the truth is, it's significantly difficult to produce single camera shows at the moment. So I think you have, there are different issues, studios have issues, single camera shoots have issues. And um, I, I, in my brain, I'm thinking, what's a good project? And I hope that we'll find ways of shooting them um, post
2: Corona. Without getting too bogged down in the semantics. So would you class a show like Breeders as a sitcom or, or would you describe it more as a comedy drama?
1: I'd say it was a comedy drama you know really good comedy drama i would say catastrophe was a comedy drama um
2: and you know so we you know i love both shows mm-hmm. and it uh, both of those shows have obviously been made with us partners so has, has that got something to do with that shift towards a slightly more yeah the, the the more drama side of things
1: no i wouldn't say so i think i think that's much more to do with funding because Um, neither show could really have happened without a US partner and I think that um, it's great to be able to have US um, money in UK shows. It's great with breeders to be making a single camera show set in London for a US audience as well as a UK audience and neither show was conceived as a UK US show. We just thought Catastrophe. That's an interesting idea for a show. Let's see if we can make it happen. Breeders. Martin came here with an idea. I thought that's an interesting idea for a show. Let's see if we can make it happen. It wasn't driven by a desire to do a UK-US show. I think that that said, in a way, the fewer funders you need for a show, the more creative you can be. And it's the funding model is is concerns me more for British sitcom than does um, the virus. (laughs) Because the direction we've ended up going in with respect to drama is everyone is focused on international co-production. You can do it in comedy for some things like breeders and catastrophe, but you can't always do it. And we certainly couldn't have done it with not going out at the beginning. It needed to be funded solely by the BBC. And today it's much harder to get a show funded solely by one organisation, which is to some extent anti-creative. Unless you're like, lucky enough to be working with very significant stars like Martin, Freeman, Simon Blackwell and Chris Anderson, where they've got they kind of they're heavy hitting enough to have multiple buyers who, who might help fund the project. If you're doing something entirely new, or somebody like Lee Mack 15 years ago wanted to do a studio sitcom when actually no one wanted to do them, uh, you, you could go to the BBC and get it funded it's actually now very hard to do that. And in fact, if you speak to them, they're basically saying you need to find money from elsewhere. And that is kind of anti-creative. You really want to be able to find a writer who's interested in doing, whether it's a single camera comedy, a single camera comedy drama, or a single camera um, drama, or frankly, a studio sitcom. um, You want to be able to go and say, that's a great idea. We've only got to persuade one person to do it. And for new talent, even more so. Because with new talent, the chances of being able to piece together a number of different buyers are quite slim, unless you start associating well known elements. And that means that the voice, the new voice that you might want to work with, is harder to, if you like, flourish. So there is a problem in the funding model with respect to what I would say are surprise hit and the history of comedy says that a lot of the biggest shows have been like that it's one of the things that sets the uk apart it's actually one of the reasons that the U- us looks to the uk now they're they're pretty open to projects they are sometimes open to projects with newer talent but usually only if they've been an award winner at the edinburgh festival or there's already got a buzz going on bbc3 or something like that but the inability to fund shows solely I think is a problem.
2: So I suppose in regards to that the show you're doing with Rose Matafeo um, yeah. with HBO Max because obviously she's very well known on the comedy scene, had that great show at Edinburgh um, a couple of years ago. How Tell me about a bit about how that show came about because that's with HBO Max isn't it? A relatively new streaming service.
1: Well we had, it, well the the origination of that was we had taken Rose prior to her winning the award in Edinburgh. We'd been to Channel 4 and the BBC to develop. We developed a show at Channel 4 and we were developing Starstruck with the BBC and it was sort of moving along. Then Edinburgh happened and she won the award and that gave the kind of elevation needed to get the US sort of interested. We were lucky enough to be in a position where it wasn't just HBO Max who was interested, in part because of Edinburgh, and and that kind of buzz, we were able to get HBO to pick up as well as the BBC, use the money from both places to be able to make the show, and we made a pilot. It got picked up, and and the rest is sort of where we are now, on hiatus, waiting for the virus to be over. But um, so that that's how that came about. Um, we developed a couple of shows of rose, and that was the one that. Um, went first now again that's brilliant and she was brilliant before she won the award but winning the award brings you to the notice of senior executives but that doesn't mean there are other people that you know only one person wins that award every year but there are other people who are also brilliant so it's it's a journey if you like to get to the to the hit. so the amount of stuff being made by people that don't win the award or aren't stars that you can fund out of one bar is what I'm really talking about as being, a, would say, the biggest issue um, facing comedy in the UK. Not least the fact that a lot of comedies are below the tax break. So high-end drama's got a big help once it's a million pounds an hour. But new talent can rarely dictate that kind of number. But the problems of shooting are still there so the fact that the tax break is great for bringing work to the uk and helping high-end projects be produced but it it perplexes me that it doesn't apply to new projects i can understand why they didn't apply it to things under a million if they were returning series, because obviously no one needs to support the soaps but i think anything new does need to be supported and particularly uk facing programming because actually out of out of an interesting idea you never know whether it's not going to be whether it's going to be an international hit or not and for me that's that's a big as big an issue as anything which is for some reason the government did not choose to support new and up and counting writing talent when it introduced the tax break
2: i suppose there was the big concern over new talent uh, coming through when bbc announced that it was uh, gonna become online only. But now, obviously, we're, the, ev- the evidence is that it's gonna return as a linear channel at some point. Um, and obviously, you, along with Jimmy Mulville, um, campaigned to buy BBC Three um, back in 2015. So do you feel vindicated by the return of BBC Three as a linear channel?
1: Well, the, the campaign to buy, as you know, was to really try and persuade the BBC to not shut it down. Um, although we would have bought it had they let us. And um, I vindicated, that's for them to say. Um, disappointed they shut it down. Yes, I'm still disappointed they shut it down. And at the time, I remember arguing, it wasn't just the fact they were shutting it down, it was the fact they were reducing the investment in young talent. Because they reduced it, I don't know if you remember, from I think 90 million a year to 30, or even less than that. And I felt that it was an insane decision by the BBC to reduce investment in the future, particularly when you've got organisations like Netflix round the corner who are actually funding the high-end talent, no problem. So the idea that the BBC who cut, cut off the lifeline seemed to be bizarre. So I am delighted that they have changed their mind and most delighted that they're putting more money into... New talent. I think they should, I don't think they should put the same amount that they put in. I think they should double it. If they want to fix the problem, they need to really heavily invest. And, you know, that's that hasn't been. All they've done was put it on hiatus for a few years. It's they're to be applauded for changing their mind because often people don't want to change their mind or be seen to have done the wrong thing. Everyone makes mistakes. I think that's fine. But it would be much better if they were saying not only are we going to put the money back, we're going to double it, and then that will that would make that would start to make a difference to plug the hole that's been created. The odd show that creates some waves is not enough. It, the the public service broadcasters are really part of the public service remit. Is is the future of broadcasting in the UK, and the future talent that will be the big night managers, Hugh Laurie did his first show on the BBC in the early 80s. He he was given a sketch show, like straight out of college. They don't do that anymore. And um, so I'm pleased that they've they've seen that they want to increase the investment. I'm surprised that it wasn't more.
2: I'm interested in how um, producers are potentially reassessing their development slates in in relation to the, the pandemic. Is that something that Avalon is doing?
1: Um, Well, I'm not a great believer in doing anything else other than look for things I think are good. So the only thing that we've done differently, apart from spending a lot of time on the development slate, (laughs) um, which we do anyway, but the only thing we've really done differently is I've started to look for studio sitcoms. Not really because anybody's given me a steer that they will want to buy them, other than perhaps the BBC we are in discussion with about actively developing studio sitcoms. And they've been supportive in that, which I'm pleased about. But just because I, my gut says, there might need to be more of it. And I like it. <laughs> and it'd be nice to attract some of the people I think could write studio sitcom back to studio sitcom. So that's the only thing we've done really, other than what we always do, which is look for interesting voices and see what they want to do. If we like the project, we'll develop it and then try and make it happen. That's our only strategy, um, although we do try to retain rights. So it's difficult for us to make deals with Netflix because they basically want to swallow up the world. Yeah, that's our strategy. Look for things that are interesting with exciting creators and try and help them make it happen.
2: And, yeah, in your conversations, are you hearing that, that they're also thinking that there might be a push here towards lighter fare? in the coming years.
1: not re- I haven't really heard that. A few people have agreed with me when I said it, but I don't know whether they meant it. <laughs>
2: hmm.
1: but I'm hoping so. I like yeah. that guy. Kind of, you know, I, I like a rate, you know, I just like interesting work. So, you know, for me, it's kind of interesting that not going out gets a big audience that's run that long, you know, and I liked it from the beginning, I still like it. But I've found over time that if you develop something you like and you back the talent and they're good, ultimately somebody will come round to the idea that maybe it's the right thing to do. You know, we've got we took it took us five years to get Taskmaster off the ground and, you know, everybody turned it down and eventually we got it off the ground. But we we didn't really do anything different other than keep going. And my my personal and our company strategy is to find things we like and keep going until we find enough other people that like them and then maybe maybe we turn out to be right in the long run.
2: And obviously sitcoms have been in the news quite a lot in the past few weeks um, in the aftermath of um, all the Black Lives Matters protests and certain broadcasters and platforms kind of reassessing certain shows in their libraries. What did you make of all that? And do you think, yeah, there's... Is that, that Some were justified and some weren't. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you thought of it. Well, my main
1: thought is that the attention that the world is now putting on black lives matter is completely brilliant so i think you know i don't think i've ever seen a movement that could possibly change things more than black lives matter so for me the implications with regard to comedy are um de minimis To it, I think that the actual movement is far more important and what I really hope is that everybody doesn't just make it a moment they forget about and they keep going so for me it's not really about what did somebody do 20 years ago it's about what people do in the future and from now so that's that's where my head's at I haven't had to face an issue I'm not a broadcaster we're not a broadcaster and I understand the broadcasters have I'm sure it's complicated but the actual Movement is not complicated, and I think that's what we ought to be focusing our brains on.
0: John Thorday. Chris Knight has spent the past few years building independent culinary specialist Gusto Worldwide Media into a channel production and distribution business. He spoke to Clive Whittingham about how he's navigated the past three months not being able to produce content for his own channel. Back in production for the first time this week, he's looking forward to getting back to a 24-7 schedule that's taking 50% longer to produce. He also considers how the event circuit will return in the coming months.
3: My name is Chris Knight. I have the pleasure of being the president and CEO of Gusto Worldwide Media, which in turn owns Gusto TV. In 2018 and 2019, we devoted significant resources to setting up Gusto as a linear streaming channel all over the world. Uh, We're on subtitled in Chinese in in Singapore. We're on in uh, Philippines. We're on all over the United States on multiple platforms and in Latin America dubbed into Spanish. So that was the setup from 18 and 19. And 2020 was supposed to be our big breakthrough year where ad revenues, we've we've stood up our own ad server, Uh, we're on multiple platforms in multiple continents, and then the virus hit. And the crazy thing, of course, is that viewership is at an all-time high. Our social media engagement is through the roof. However, uh, advertising revenues have not kept pace with viewership. So we're kind of, Dressed and ready to go to the prom, as a global broadcaster, a uh, you know um, a brand builder, and a content producer, uh, you are genetically predisposed to being optimistic. You know we're very proud of everything that we've built, and and we expect to come through this bent and bruised, but stronger on the other side. And uh, when things get back to some semblance of norm- normalcy we expect uh the revenues to uh to increase as well but the good news is that uh we start production today so we're we're starting to produce new content again
4: new for people that haven't seen your channel can you talk us through the sort of content that's on there i mean you it's, it's food and, and culinary but it's, there's quite a lot of studio based shows and you produce <clears throat> mostly in house if, if i remember correctly can you Can you talk us through what people would find on your schedule, you know, in a normal year?
3: Sure. So Gusto is a bit of a white buffalo in that we produce everything that is seen on the channel. Every single television or every single show that you see, we produce ourselves. Half of our programming is shot in our state-of-the-art facility um, in studio, and the other half is shot in the field, depending on where stories are for instance right now literally quite right now this week we were supposed to be shooting in Singapore but that's not happening this year and we were supposed to be shooting in um, in Brazil um, in the fall and we have a couple of big field productions uh, that were slated for Toronto that obviously are not going to happen now so everything that we do we produce in-house and it is all food food shows cooking shows travel shows Anything that's not a contest or a game show, which is what the other guys do, we do it. Um, And typically we skew about 66% female, almost 40% of our audience is under the age of 40. Um, Yeah, so we are um, the best food channel in the world.
4: And how much of that were you able to continue with during the pandemic?
3: Well, we, you know, we had stuff on the shelf that we had produced and we had stuff, uh, other shows that were in a post-production cycle. We would finished shooting them, but we hadn't finished posting them. So, like the rest of the world, we stopped production at the beginning of March and uh, that came to a grinding halt then. But we had, we had content that we were ready to put up anyway. From a purely practical point of view, traditionally viewership numbers are down in January, February anyway, um, and, and start to come back up in March. So, so we, we fiddled with the schedule a bit. We had con- new content to put up, but now we're back in production. And I think uh, if not the first in, in the country, certainly uh, in Ontario, we're the first production company back. So we're very excited. There's a buzz in the building. That adrenaline rush you get when you're about to, uh, to make something new. We're in a bit of a, a fortunate spot in that we have built, we've built our own studio. So we're a self-contained, single-purpose facility um, and that's been on lockdown for the last nine weeks. The second thing is we've increased all of our production budgets, uh, shooting time, by 50%. So we've added 50% more shoot time per episode. It's a significant expense, but by doing that, we can slow everybody down. Television is a rush, and we have a lot of really creative, really focused people, and you know, when you're in the thick of it, and you're doing a job, and there's a buzz in the studio, and everybody's running around, you can forget to put a mask on, or you touch something, or you pick something up. So, by increasing the production time per episode, it allows us to slow everything down. For, uh, for instance, camera operators will now be responsible for all of their own gear. So, we've done away for this with the camera assist, right? So, when you've got to change a battery or you want to change a lens, you got to do it yourself. And you're totally responsible for your own gear. Uh, obviously, the um, small details like craft services and things have changed dramatically. Uh, we've set up wash stations everywhere, and you have to wear a mask to get into the building. So those are a, a bunch of the changes that we made, we've made. The green room for the talent is a secure sp- room. Uh, only the talent um, and um, uh, wardrobe get into the green room. Uh, we've changed traffic flows patterns in the building, and... Everybody has just got to be more aware of everybody else. We have a big show called DNA Dinners. We we were supposed to shoot our second season this summer in Toronto. Uh, First season's done exceptionally well. So, but it's a big show and it's got multiple crews that go to five different locations over the course of a seven day shoot period. Uh, We had to push it to 2021 in good conscience i can't plan that i mean we're we're fortunate in that we only produce content for ourselves so we we're both a broadcaster and a producer for production companies not just in canada but anywhere that rely on you know um commissioned content from broadcasters there's two words that make most of them sit up screaming at night and that's cash flow and i think unfortunately um depending on how long it takes to roll out on this we're going to lose a lot of really great production companies not just in canada but everywhere and i've been doing this for 25 years and i'm in touch with people all over the world all the time and there's a lot there's going to there's going to be a lot of uh a lot of production companies shutting down just because they haven't been able to ride out the storm and that's unfortunate um but I, I think that's what we're going to see through the twenty twenty one.
4: You've also um, moved into a, a sales and, and distribution model um, with your some of your programming. Can you tell us about some of the stuff that's uh, that's available from from Gusto Media worldwide? Um, what that could help other people out with uh, with their schedule.
3: Well, I mean the the, the show that's that's done really, really well for us uh, recently is DNA Dinners. It's, it's a really great show. Um, There's a cliffhanger in every act and some real genuine tears and hugs at the end. So it's a very emotional show. Uh, It's a lot of fun. It's beautifully shot. That's done really well. Um, Right now barbecue is huge. So we have another season of um, Spencer's what's on the grill uh which is doing really really well and we're just about to shoot a new show called combination place which is a fusion show uh fusion cuisine show global fusion cuisine show um that we is a pretty bizarre set um we think that'll be very visually stunning and of course we the other show that we're just bringing to market is called cook like a chef which is Very very interesting, very different than any television, any food show that you've seen, studio scene that you've ever seen before. It's it's really interesting. It's a very, very different
0: show. Chris Knight. Katie Neff, senior VP of Development at High Noon Entertainment, spoke to Nico Franks about the future of reality TV post pandemic and how the protests against racism will impact her production going forward. She also discusses how reality television will need to be much more relatable in future.
2: So thanks for joining us, Katie. Uh, you run development at uh, High Noon Entertainment, an ITV America company, uh, best known for shows like Fixer Upper and Cake Boss. And it does seem like there's an opportunity um, being presented by the current situation we're in for reality TV, given that we're seeing a lot of broadcasters um, having to pause production on scripted, but also sometimes pausing commissioning of scripted as well. So could we potentially be seeing a boom in reality TV content?
5: You know, I definitely think we could. It's it's quicker turn programming for sure, um, and dependent on the format, but generally it's a much smaller footprint from a crew perspective, and we can be a little bit more nimble as far as that is concerned. Um, so I do, I think there's a big opportunity for reality producers to make even more content. In this this kind of environment that we're in,
2: how has the the current situation changed your approach to development?
5: In the beginning, when this all first happened, we were trying to think of quick turn productions that we could that we could pump out quickly um, that maybe were self shot or shot using um, very very small crews. Um, but now I think we're getting into the place where. We're just trying to pitch the show in the best iteration that it can be. And then we are sure to have kind of a backup plan for, hey, if when this show is ready to be produced, COVID is still a problem, what could we do to make this work? Because at the end of the day, we don't know how long this is gonna go on for. And of course we wanna pitch the best version of these shows possible. And oftentimes the self-shot version isn't the best version. But it's certainly a version that could be done if if need be.
2: So you I imagine you're having your normal conversations that you'd be having with unscripted networks and in the US like HGTV and food networks. So networks that wouldn't ordinarily really be involved in scripted. Are you having conversations with broadcasters or platforms that previously were maybe a bit more focused on scripted that are now looking at unscripted as an opportunity?
5: You know, it's it's interesting. I actually haven't heard that explicitly stated by any of the network executives that we've talked to. Um, I mean, we're still talking with all of the cable networks and the streaming platforms that we were before. And I think the appetite is very high for their next big reality hit show. Um, I haven't explicitly heard it stated that, hey, we're going to be doing way more reality than we were before because of this situation. But we've all kind of thought, hey, that, that might be the case, depending on how long this this goes on for. So I think there's an opportunity there for reality producers for sure. Again, I mean, the platforms that we've been talking to have have had an interest in reality prior to this situation. So I don't know what their mandates are on their side. Um, but we're looking at it as an opportunity to to get more programming out there.
2: And are there, are there trends that were already existent in the TV, in the unscripted TV business prior to the pandemic that you could maybe see being accelerated by, um, by the pandemic?
5: You know, I mean, I do think, and you see this more on places like YouTube and, and on a lot of these, um, you know, Snapchat and everything like that. There are so many young people who are primed for COVID production because they're used to filming themselves and creating their own content. And, doing it without an entire crew behind them. Um, and so it's it's possible that you'll see that kind of leak into more standard reality production than before. A- again, you've seen it a little bit since since the pandemic. I don't know how, how much that will continue to be the case. But I do think what we've been talking about, just for us, since we do so much programming in the lifestyle space, what we've been talking about is we think that relatability is gonna be really important moving forward. For instance, in the home renovation space, my guess, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that viewers are gonna wanna see relatable price points and relatable renovations and things that they feel like they can can replicate in these crazy, uncertain times. So I don't know that we'll be pitching, you know, million dollar makeovers. Not that we were before, but (laughs) I think being mindful of the current climate is something that we'll try to do from a development perspective across the board. I think the climate will will create certain content opportunities that we'll wanna try and, and capitalize on and be creative with. Some of our series that we're now starting to ramp back up into production do just by their very nature have smaller scale crews um, and local crews that don't require travel. Um, so that's been interesting trying to ramp those shows up first. Um, and you know, that is something that we're considering is, okay, how can, we, how can we produce more shows like those that are doable in a time like this and, and that we can safely produce?
2: So the past month really, obviously there's been the pandemic, but also the, the Black Lives Matter movement really, really accelerate in the US and that's had an impact outside of the U.S. as well, massively. Do you think the reality TV industry needs to reassess how it's portrayed people of color um, in the past?
5: I mean, in my personal opinion, absolutely. Um, Yes, and and I think from, from our perspective in the lifestyle space, I know we've talked about this as a team, we would really like to be more actively pursuing diverse talent and putting them on putting them on TV in a positive light. So I think that's definitely something that that is a priority for us, for sure. Again, we haven't, um, I think some of the the programming that you're probably referring to, High Noon hasn't really done. But yeah, that's definitely something that, that we've been talking about and that we want to do more of, for sure, without a doubt.
2: And is the onus on commissioners there and buyers to request talent? From diverse backgrounds or do you think it is on the production community?
5: I think it's both I think it's I think it's both because I think you know for us when we develop we we kind of develop it's a combination of getting targets from the network and then also internal development um, I would say ours is around 50 50 you know I mean we've, we've got long great relationships on the network side and of course, we're in constant conversations with them, asking what they want, what they're looking for, what holes they're looking to fill on, the, on their network and all that. But also, you know, we have a robust internal development team um, who's constantly out there looking for new targets and new faces and new worlds that maybe the networks haven't even thought of. So I think it's both for sure.
0: Katie Neff. That's all we have time for this week. We'll be back again next week. In the meantime, stay safe and well wherever you are. My name's David Jenkinson. Thanks for listening.